a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, we're back again. I'm your host, Nathan Romas. And today we're talking to one of our brothers from across the border to the south. We got Joe Gamaldi with us. He is the national vice president of the Fraternal Order of Police. And give you a little bit of background on Joe. He's originally from Long Island, New York. He has a degree in criminal justice with minors in political science and sociology. After school, Joe was hired by the New York Police Department in 2005 and then moved to the Houston Police in 2008, where he's currently a sergeant. Joe has since earned a master's degree in Homeland Security Management and served on the Houston Police Officers Union. And now he's in his current role. So welcome, Joe. Uh, Nathan, thank you very much for that wonderful uh, introduction. Thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast. I'm excited. And I want to actually, I should have probably asked you this just before, but it's Gamaldi or Jamaldi? Because I've heard that as well. No, you got it right, Gamaldi. And I was actually shocked because a lot of people would go for the just sound instead. So I appreciate you getting it right. That's how I heard it on a podcast from two years ago. So uh, <laughs> I was like, ooh, I just want, uh, out of nowhere, I was like, I hope I got it right. So, um, no, thank you for coming on and giving us some time uh, up here, your, your friends to the north. So I think we have a lot of similar issues that we w- want to talk about and uh, a lot of similarities uh with some of this stuff. So let's uh, get into it. And if you could kind of give people an idea of what makes you tick and where you came from, uh, tell us about yourself. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Long Island, New York. Uh, after college, took a job with the NYPD. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting experience. I worked in the worst neighborhood in Brooklyn, you know, where the, the murder rate was through the roof. And, you know, my first day out there, you know, people were throwing batteries and dirty diapers off the housing project's roof at you and welcome you. So uh, it, it was certain, uh, certainly a trial by fire when I first started the department there in the NYPD. Um, and I, I really loved what I, what I did for a living, but it was just so expensive to live there in New York. I mean, I, I lived in a shoebox apartment, the type that was so small when you opened your bedroom door and hit your bed. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, finally, I woke up one day and I was like, is this really what I want for my life? Um, I was also, you know, involved in an officer-involved shooting in my time in the NYPD. And, you know, of course, uh, the media and the activists came out, even though it was a you know, completely justified shooting. And, you know, we're throwing me under the bus at every opportunity. And, you know, the department just kind of let you hung out there for a week until they put out a statement that said it was completely justified. So after that and just the cost of living, I decided I wanted to change. Uh, I looked around and kind of saw what you could get for the money in Houston as far as housing. And I was like, sign me up because the cost of living is extremely uh, low in Houston. And it just was going to lead to a much better quality of life for me. So I transferred down here about 14 years ago. Best decision of my life. Uh, And I actually was very fortunate that I met my mentor at the time, Ray Hunt, right when I joined the department. And he was the one that actually got me involved in the union work. I, I never had any interest in it. It, was, it wasn't a passion of mine right there at the beginning. And, but, uh, you know, I wanted things to get better. And the, kind of the seminal moment, it, you know, you have these moments in life where, where somebody touches, touches, that, touches you and says something. And, and it changes your complete trajectory. And then this was one of those moments in my life. 
He looked me in the eyes and he said, how do you expect anything to get better around here unless you get involved and use your voice? Yeah. And I was like, whoa, you know, for somebody that's, you know, 25, 26 years old at the time, uh, it was kind of a, a slap in the face to say, you can't just sit around and complain about things. You got to, you know, take the bull by the horns. You got to do something about it. So I got on our union board shortly thereafter. I was elected second vice president uh, quickly after that. I did that job for five years before I became the, you know, president of one of the largest lodges in the country as, uh, as our Houston Lodge is. And then a few years back, uh, you know, a couple of people that, that I respect very much said, we really believe that given your voice and your talent and how much, how, pa- how much passion you have, we think you'd be a great fit for the, the national vice president of the FOP. We'd like you to run. And, you know, the members saw fit to elect me three years ago. Uh, I did a two-year term and just got reelected about a year ago again. Uh, it's been a wild ride. I have loved every minute of it. Um, and it is truly the honor of a lifetime to be the voice of law enforcement, you know, in this country. Because the FOP, make no doubt about it, in the United States, is the voice for law enforcement. And for me to be able to go out there and defend the hardworking men and women of law enforcement, um, it's an honor. It's one I'm going to cherish forever, for sure. And uh, I I just, I take an immense amount of pride that the FOP here in the States, we stepped up to the plate in the most difficult time that we've ever had in law enforcement in our entire history. Mm -hmm. And we have stood up, we have defended our people, and we've done the very best job to make sure that everybody in this country knows that we're out there to help people and we're out here to make a difference. Can you kind of explain uh, how how it, the structure of it all works. So you have, you know, the Houston union and where does the FOP fall in that? And what do they do exactly? Yeah. So the FOP, the way it works is we're kind of a layered structure. So we have a local lodge, which would be like the Houston lodge here in Houston or a local lodge in Chicago or a local lodge in Philadelphia. And then you have a state lodge. So there'll be a state lodge for a Texas state lodge or an Illinois state lodge or a Pennsylvania state lodge. And then you have the national board that's over all of that. And I sit as the national vice president there. And essentially what the local unions are doing are handling, you know, the local everyday issues that they're dealing with in their cities and their communities. The state is handling things at their state legislature and the issues that are impacting there. And then us as a national are obviously lobbying in Washington, D.C. to make sure that we can get laws passed that are beneficial for us also try to block laws that are going to be, you know, harmful for our profession, um, while also just a robust advocacy for law enforcement across the country. And that's a big role of what we're doing. And it's not just media appearances and interviews. It's also, you know, social media outreach. So, you know, of course, as a national FOP, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, uh, YouTube, because we truly believe, like, you have to go where the people are. Yeah. And I think too often you'll see some police officers say, oh, well, we don't, we don't need to have a Facebook page or, uh, we, you know, Twitter's only for the far left. Why would you be on Twitter? Things like that. And it's like, this is the public square now. Mm-hmm. This is where conversations are being had. This is where policy is being debated. I mean, whether you like it or not, this is where it's happening now. Well, if you, you shut down one side, not- if you shut down one yeah. side, uh, you know, we're, we're just talking amongst each other in the echo chamber, right? And so nothing will ever get done. You still got 50% of the population you got to engage with. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, and I think it's critical now more than ever, because I don't know if you're experiencing the same things up north as we are here, but the, the polarization in this country is only getting worse and worse. And everybody just wants to go to their silo, like you were just saying, go to their echo chamber. 
and only talk with people that agree with them. And that's a very dangerous place to be because we all need to be talking with one another about the issues that impact our communities and make sure we're all working together to try to get to these kind of middle of the road solutions that make sense to most of us. But for whatever reason, we have politicians going further and further to both sides of the political spectrum. I think up here, and, and this is just a, um, just my own opinion from what I see, but I think you know, when you look at Canadian politics and then when it comes down to the policing and police narratives, we kind of operate in a, a slightly more polite world maybe, but we're, we kind of operate within goalposts that run like 60, 40, maybe people will venture out to 70, 30 with their, uh, how crazy they want to get with pushing an agenda or protesting or whatever it might be. Whereas you look at um, the U.S. and you guys play in like the 90 to 100. You're either this or you're that. <laughs> and it's riotous and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, um, and that's not to say too, like it's uh, uh, for up here, I think we are so heavily influenced by uh, the U.S., right? Most of our TV channels, most of our news, and then you have all the social media it all comes from the U.S. So mm-hmm. lots of people, when we talk to people on the street, when I do my day-to-day job, I work with our gang uh, gang team. I'm out there on the street every day. We, not, all the, the lingo, when people talk about their rights, uh, people talk about uh, impaired driving, it's all DUIs and DWIs. And I want, I, you know, I have the right to remain silent. Basically, they watch cops and they think that's the that's how it works. It's like, well, for the most part, a lot of our laws are the same, but a lot of stuff is different. And uh, people think it's, you know, what they see on TV or hear. That's exactly how it is up here. And like I said, we're playing in a slightly more polite world, but um, it's still it's still a lot of the stuff that you see from the U.S. happening up here. Yeah, it's uh you know, I, my my personal favorite because I still work the streets as well. I'm a night shift patrol sergeant here here in Houston. I think my personal favorite though just happens to be the TSI detectives. You know, the people that think uh, their car got broken into and we're going to start pulling prints and DNA yes. and everything else. <laughs> that, that that happens to be my personal favorite. Yeah, no, that is a hundred percent. That the exact same thing happens up here. Uh, one thing maybe you can kind of clear up a rumor for us too is when uh, a lot of the stuff kind of all the narratives started going down a couple of years ago and there's all the riots going on. And, you know, we hear about police leaving uh, various services just in droves throughout the U.S. Uh, There was some rumor going around that Canadian police would be very welcome down there and that you could basically go down there and apply to be a cop and they'd take you and fast track you to citizenship. Any truth to that? Well, you know, you certainly would have to become a citizen, and I could certainly see departments throwing their weight around to try to get y'all citizenship as quickly as possible. Because, you know, Nathan, I don't think it's hyperbole when I tell your listeners right now that the profession of policing in the United States is dying. Mm. I mean, there, there's really no other way for me to put it. Uh, our retirements nationwide are up 45%. Our resignation are up 20%. Recruitment is completely in the tank. In Massachusetts, applications are down 40%. In Illinois, they're down 70%. In New Jersey, they're down 90%. A recent study out of Colorado, they surveyed all the agencies in Colorado, 70% 
so they can't find anybody to take the job. Chicago alone, applications are down 83%. So you have this perfect storm going on right now where we have everyone leaving out the door. Uh, you know, our retirements in the NYPD are up over 40%. Seattle's losing hundreds of officers every single year for a department that's only about, you know, a thousand people at this point. Uh, so they're in complete crisis mode. So we have this perfect storm where everyone's leaving, they're retiring and resigning, and we don't have anyone to fill the spots. So we're just slowly dying off. And the only way for municipalities, you know, cities or counties to keep up with this is to reduce services to the community. And we've already seen that start happening in our cities where we're not sending officers out for property crimes anymore. So, you know, if your car gets broken into, your house gets broken into, they're not even going to send an officer. They're just going to send you to an online portal. Go ahead and fill out an online report. We're not sending you an officer. Wow. And the other way that they're going to be able to try to get people to, to join the department is to lower standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the NYPD, they've stopped testing for marijuana, uh, for you know drug use there. Uh, they've also started lowering standards to where they'll take people with a more extensive criminal history to become a police officer. So just, you know, like, think about this for a second. We are talking about how important it is to bridge the gap with the community and to build trust. This is only going to exacerbate that problem when you start bringing on people that have no business being police officers. I mean, this mm-hmm. is going to bite us in the ass down the road when we have people who aren't qualified who are making mistakes, who are using force when they're not supposed to use force. I mean, it, it's going to be a complete disaster. And and to speak about the relationship that we have with the community for a moment, imagine this scenario for a second about how harmful this is. We're so you know short-staffed, our response times are through the roof, you know, basically uh, across the board in every community. But you call the police because your house was broken into. And for most people, that's probably one of the worst days of their lives, right? Mm-hmm. And then you call the police and we either say we're not sending someone out, which, by the way, is a smack in the, a smack in the face to somebody who pays their taxes and expects someone to come out. Or it takes us five, six, seven hours to get out there. Yeah, I don't care if I'm the friendliest officer you've ever met in your life. You're pissed that you just waited that long for me to come out when your house was broken into. So no matter how much I try to bridge the gap on that scene, you've already dug a hole out underneath me. And it just, it harms the relationships that we're trying to build with the community. Um, It's not right. They're setting us up to failure. And as I said, I mean, my goodness, if there are any police officers in Canada that are listening to this right now, we are hiring. Come down. I mean, I'll help you get citizenship, whatever you need. If you got to stay at my house, I'll, I'll put you up because we need as many people as we can get. Well, you know what, and we have the same issues up here. We have calls that get recycled for days at a time. Uh, we have Ugh. numerous overtime shifts that can't get filled. Uh, I think it was just yesterday, I was counting through some of the overtime uh, emails going out. And we have, it's, so our city's kind of broken into six areas. And each of the areas was sending mm-hmm. out like four or five overtime emails and they're even actually competing against each other to a point where they're sending them out a week ahead, trying to get ahead of stuff. And they still don't fill them. They sit there empty for weeks. Yeah. Uh, we have extra duty jobs. So you want to work the hockey game. You want to work a concert. There's a whole bunch of those that go out, all kinds of uh, festivals and different things we work at. Those don't get filled. They're sending emails out a day or two before saying, hey, we need people to, to work this, put your availability in. So... Yeah, we're, we're experiencing the same issues. I wonder, uh, I'd like to get your opinion on recruiting 
and the type of people we're targeting for recruiting. So when I think back to when I was getting into policing, this would be 2011. Uh, I remember seeing a lot of the, the recruiting posters, you know, they're, it's the helicopter swooping in and there's people fast roping and they got the dogs going and lights and all the explosions and everything, right? It was posters out of lethal weapon. Um, now, now it's uh, a picture of a nice person standing there with a forge cap and their tie on. And for me, I'm thinking like, uh, that, that whoever is coming in with that expectation that that's what they're going to do, especially when you start on the street in uh, patrol, like you're going to be in for a rude awakening. And further to that, when they actually get in the, uh, recruit training process now from the people I talk to out there, it's called adult learning. So there's not really any more yelling at people. There's no, uh, drill, um, so they just come in, they do their nice eight to four. It's like taking a university course and they go home. Now you're going to put that person on the street. You got people who are high on all kinds of drugs. They're extremely mm-hmm. emotional. You're setting them up for uh, a very rude awakening. And I mean, this is going to get officers injured uh, or something worse, right? Yeah, I mean, you're setting them up for failure is basically what you're doing. You know, a more accurate recruiting poster, you know, for here in the States might be someone screaming in your face or spitting on you What <laughs> yeah. in the recruiting poster to kind of tell you like, hey, this is the job. Like, this is what you're going to be dealing with. And, and you know, when, when you kind of soften up the academy because you're just hoping to get people through the door, you're not doing those people any favors. You know, I, I think there's some value in keeping the academy in a kind of a paramilitary setting where people are getting yelled at, where they understand they're going to be under stress because that's what the job is. So we should be conditioning those folks from day one to be able to handle that. Because, you know, listen, here in the States, like, there's another big reason why recruitment is down, and that's because we're literally vilified daily in the media. I mean, we have officers being thrown under the bus for every use of force possible, even when it's completely justified. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, for the better part of a decade, We've been demonized and denigrated. So, I mean, we've been beaten up. So the, the hardworking, intelligent college graduates who are so interested in giving a life of service to their community, you know, they're looking at that and saying, you know, screw that. I'm not becoming a police officer. You know, yeah, I'm interested in serving my community, but I'm going to go become a, a firefighter or I'm going to be, go become a nurse, which, which is still honorable profession. But we're losing out on those people because of the environment that we are in. And the people that we are getting, you know, we just had somebody the other day, you know, now that you mention it, they went through the entire training program, uh, entire academy. They came out to our station, lasted three days before he quit and, and left because they did not prepare him for what was going to happen on the street. Just how volatile these situations can be out on these streets, especially when you're dealing with people who may hate you. And I think it's important to prepare people what they're up against. I mean, literally, the profession that we do, me and you, Nathan, it is the only profession in our countries, with with the exception of our brave servicemen and women who serve our country, that you go to work and someone is actively trying to kill you. Yes. And anybody who signs on the dotted line, they need to understand that. They need to be prepared for that and, and all the dangers that go along with it. Yeah, exactly. And do you, um, I guess it's still be on the kind of the recruiting side, 
But I remember when I was getting uh, into policing, right at the beginning, they would tell us that, you know, uh, when an officer uh, dies in the line of duty and it's, you know, it's put on the news, they would actually see an influx of people applying to the police. And it'd be, I guess, similar to if you looked at like 9-11. 9-11 happens mm-hmm. and then you just get a, uh, you know, everyone's like, you know, hoorah, we're look, we want to go fight. We want to go do this for our country. We want to get out there and get after yeah, it. Yeah, or the latest Top Gun movie comes out because yeah. recruitment's up <laughs> yeah. for, you know, the Navy right now because Top Gun just came out. Yes, yes. I, I imagine those are actually pretty, pretty good too for recruiting. But is, um, would, do you see that still? Do you see people kind of coming out for the community? They want to stand up for the community, stand up for the common person. Is that still a thing? I don't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. No, uh, not not when we have you know an officer involved death. I, there, there's no spike in recruitment anymore. There's not this sense that you know there are people that that want to help in our community, and there's people that want to help their communities, but they don't want to be police officers anymore. And and, and honestly, I don't blame them. Like yeah. you know, if I could step back for a moment, you know, and take off my police officer hat and just look at it. You know, if I'm coming out of college, or I just got my master's degree and, I, and I'm looking for a job and, and like, make no mistake, you know, to your listeners, if you're not a police officer, we ain't doing this for the money, folks, because mm-hmm. none of us is getting rich being a police officer. Um, I think if you take a step back, you, you don't blame them for not wanting to be a police officer. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous job, especially here in the States. I mean, the, the violence we are seeing against law enforcement here in the state um, is infinitely worse than it ever has been in the 17 years that I've been a police officer. I mean, um, it, it's just terrible. Last year in 2021, it was the deadliest year for law enforcement in intentional homicide in the last 20 years. We have already seen 200 police officers shot in this country. That is a 15% increase this year over last at the same time. And last year, was a historic year for police officers being shot. We had 346 police officers shot last year, which is a, uh, a record number since we started tracking data about seven, eight years ago. Um, it's only getting worse. Um, and, uh, you know, I just don't see it slowing down either, to be honest with you, Nathan. It, it's just really bad. We have been put in a very bad position thanks to, you know, politicians and the media and activists constantly beating the anti-police drum and the, and the harmful, divisive rhetoric against us. Uh, they've really painted us as the enemy to a lot of people. And people are thinking less and less of shooting us. And they're thinking less and less of killing us. And, and thanks to some of what I would refer to as the woke criminal justice policies, which is just mm-hmm. a revolving door where they just get out over and over and over again. You know, there's no consequences. And when you have an entire generation who has not had to experience consequences or be accountable for their own actions. We are seeing extreme violence from kind of that, you know, 17 to 23 year old range where in their, in their prime committing crime years, because they just, the, the world they know is yeah. that I'm not going to be held accountable for anything I do. So I might as well shoot at this cop and try to get away. So uh, what type of violence? So when you're saying the increase in violence, what type of violence are you seeing against cops? Is it, mostly people shooting back or um are people doing just you know anything they can yeah i mean the the primary thing is just being shot but yeah just assaults in general are up resisting arrest like literally every category you could imagine across the board is up in in assaulting police officers here in the states it's uh 
it's bad. And when you combine that with our staffing numbers that are extremely low, you can imagine just how much of a recipe for disaster it is. You know, you have officers, you know, riding by themselves in their police car and they're being shot at the, oh, ambush attacks are up 30% against us. Um, You know, it's, I I hate to say it, but we're going to work every day with a target on our back. And Mm -hmm. there are actually people that are hunting us where they're setting up ambushes specifically to kill us. Um, It's bad. It's it's the worst I've ever seen. And like I said, I've been a police officer for 17 years. Yeah. The, um, I'd say, I don't know if you've seen the news uh, just on Vancouver Island. So on our West coast, there was a bank robbery and a couple, well, two brothers. They, uh, set up what it sounds like from all the media stuff I've read, almost like an ambush of police and uh, six tactical members uh, got hit and a few of them got some very serious injuries. Um, so, you know, we haven't seen obviously the level of shootings up here uh, against police, mm-hmm. but definitely the violence of, you know, people aren't, aren't scared to throw a punch at you and not that they have to be scared. Yeah. I shouldn't be used that, I guess. It's just there's zero uh, respect for authority and for lawful orders. And people are uh, definitely willing to talk back and push the limits, I guess would be the best way to put it. They will push the limits right to the extent and then follow it up with unlimited amount of complaints and civil suits Mm -hmm. and all kinds of stuff. So you get it from every which way. Um, And then again, like you're saying, the political narratives don't help. They're telling everybody we're all systemically racist. They're telling everybody yeah. um, we're just racist in general. Um, all these apologies are going out. And it's like, I had this conversation with somebody in my service, actually one of the uh, higher ups. And we were talking about that where it's like, a lot of the people on this job are, uh, especially the people on the front lines, it's generally the younger generation that's out there. Uh, they all grew up in a, a post-racial world. A lot of them have multiracial families. So when you're going out and making apologies, it's like, I feel like these apologies and a lot of the, the talk that's out there, the rhetoric, that's for people, you know, the 50 plus white people and maybe the 16 and under people who just don't know what's going on in the world. But everybody else has mixed families, very diverse backgrounds. They come from all uh, walks of life and income levels. And, you know, I think it's, it doesn't match what actually is, is out there. Oh, Nathan, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. And I was actually like, when you were talking about it, I was going to go there and you you stole a bit of my thunder there, Uh, but no, it's like I, the department I work for, we are a majority minority department. mm -hmm. And and yet people will say, well, y'all are all racist. I'm like, what are you talking about? Every person I supervise, you know, I, I supervise a squad of seven guys is a minority. And, yeah. and you know what the funny part is? What they say from the outside doesn't match what we see on the inside. Yes. It's like when we all get together as police officers, we don't see anybody's race. We don't see anybody's socioeconomic status. We're all just coworkers who get along. We joke together. We hang out together. It's like a family. So it's like, well, you're calling us all racist, but somehow we're in our internal family over here. And I, you know, I, and this is just, you know, a personal anecdote, you know, my wife's a woman of color and my children are mixed, but yet I will get hurled at from people saying, oh, you're racist or you're this or you're that. And I'm like, really? Yeah. But it's exactly what you said. They have no idea 
um, what we're really like, and they have no idea how we actually think. They just try to pigeonhole us into this narrative that, you know, we're all racist and that we don't care. And you, you know what's funny about that, though, Nathan? Mm. The same people that will hurl that at us are the same people that support the revolving door criminal justice policies that disproportionately impact minority communities. Yes. So right here in the state, right here in the state, we have violent crime. <laughs> it, it impacts black Americans so much more to the tune of 12 times the homicide rate of everyone else in this country. And you're going to sit there and you're going to call us in the police department racist when you support policies that we know directly correlates in black people being murdered wholesale in our streets and our urban communities. I'm sorry. It's a load of crap that mm -hmm. these people spew and they do it to try to make themselves feel better about themselves and the virtue signal to their neighbors. But they don't give a damn about these minority communities, not one bit. And I know because I'm in those communities every single day. And you know what those folks want? They want more police officers in their neighborhood. They want to feel safe. They support the police. Mm -hmm. I mean, my God, me and my wife don't even feel comfortable taking our children to the neighborhood that she grew up in because crime is so bad. So, so don't, don't give me this nonsense that, you know, police officers are the problem and we're racist. It's that soft bigotry of these elites yeah. who, you know, who will make these comments. They don't care about our communities. But you know who does? We do as police officers because we're in them every single day. Well, and I was actually just having this conversation with uh, my partner yesterday. The uh, the same. So you're talking about like how it's the revolving door, and what I think a lot of it too is is the true victim in a lot of this gets uh, gets lost in all this political narrative and the and the woke stuff. So if you have a domestic violence, uh, say domestic violence is higher in a certain community, whether it's black community or indigenous community, but when they go for their bail hearing, they are more likely to be released. And I've been told this by numerous people involved in the bail process, parole process, probation process. I've had people in everywhere tell me this, that essentially if you're from one of these groups that, uh, is part of the narrative right now, there's less chance you're going to be held in. Well, if you go for, uh, say, domestic violence and you arrest someone, you bring them in, you try to get them held for whatever reason it might be. You don't want them released. They get released. Well, they go right back to that community. So we're, mm -hmm. you know, the, the people who are complaining about everything are only looking at the accused and saying, oh, well, you can't keep them in. You shouldn't charge them. They have all these other things in life. Well, that's fine. We can, we got to deal with that. But what about that victim right at the root of this whole, uh, the whole call? Why we're there? Though those are the people that are calling us the most. So obviously we're in those communities the most. Those are the people who are going to make up most of our statistics for arrests or, you know, our street checks. I don't know if you guys have street checks down there, but that was a huge, huge topic up here about who we're collecting data on and why we're collecting it. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you know, you have the revolving door. You're putting these people back in the street. I'm going to be right back in their community dealing with that guy again. And it's going to add more to your stats. And then you're just going to call us racist because they make up a bigger percentage of the arrests or something. So I think you're spot on. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and look at it this way too, Nathan, uh, 
often forgotten in all of this is think about how difficult it is for us to do our job and gather information and witnesses and complainants to cases when they know the suspect is going to be right back yes. out. It is already hard enough to get a witness to give us a statement, whether it's a shooting or stabbing, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. But when they know that, yeah, I'm willing to talk to the police to sniff this guy out because this guy's a bully in our community. He's shooting people. He's stealing drugs. We don't want him here. But I know if he figures out that I told yeah. you, he's going to be out in 10 hours. And he's going to come around. He's going to beat me up. Or he's he's usually out before the end so of your show. I'm not saying a damn word yeah. to the police. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we won't even be done with the yeah. paperwork and he'll already be out. So now you have an entire community who doesn't feel safe to tell us the problems that they're having. And you know, as well as I do, especially you working in a gang unit, your best intel comes from people on the street, people that live in the community, the little old lady that sits on her front porch and sees everything mm -hmm. that goes on. You know, uh, those are the people that we want talking to us and they won't now because this failed social experiment of the revolving door criminal justice system has scared the hell out of them, rightfully so, from talking to the police and giving us the information we need to get those violence on people off the street. Uh, one thing I did want to kind of touch on, too, is just the morale and the camaraderie that you guys have. Uh, I imagine it'd be kind of similar up uh, to us up here, but was the blue line. And I know from watching a couple of your interviews, um, the ones that have video, not like our podcast, but uh, you have the blue line right behind you. And is that a huge topic down there? Is that a contentious issue? Is it considered a racist symbol? Or is that still a narrative there? Yeah, I mean, that's a narrative. I just don't buy that. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I just because somebody wants to say something is racist doesn't make it racist. And I, I just don't buy into that crap. And that's people that are just looking to, to denigrate us and throw us under the bus and and just because you say something is racist doesn't make it racist. So, yeah, I do have a thin blue line flag because really what that represents and what it's always represented is that we're the line between order and yes. chaos. We're the line between victims and the predators that are trying to harm them. Like, that's what the thin blue line is. So, no, nah, I, I, I don't buy that crap. And, and as far as morale is concerned, I mean, I've been a police officer for 17 years. I, I've never seen morale as bad as it is right now. Um, but I will say the camaraderie is still there. You know, we, we all still share stories and talk to one another. And, and, and a part of that is also, you, you know, the mental health aspect of it, you know, venting to one another, talking about the things that are impacting us. Um, because we, we have a serious mental health crisis in law enforcement right now. Um, you know, a, a recent study that was just published in the National Library of Medicine said that police officers are 54% more likely to kill themselves than any other profession. Uh, we've already had 93 suicides nationwide this year. Um, and, you know, a, a recent internal study that we did of our members here at the FOP found that the number one stressor for officers is actually staffing. And, and it makes sense when you think about it because guys are getting burned out. You were talking about the overtime shifts that are constantly yeah. coming out. They can only work so much of that. Um, they're not taking a day off to spend time with their family, to decompress. And, and it's just it's a recipe for disaster. So I, I think it's really important now more than ever that we're leaning on one another, that we're checking in our, on our brother and sister officers. You know, I, I tell my own guys, don't walk past that officer that, that looks like he's having a rough day. Just say hello and ask him how he's doing, uh, because that can make all the difference in the world. So I, I think the camaraderie is still strong, but, 
you know, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to try to keep morale up in, in whatever police station or unit that we work in. You know, you decide yeah. what kind of attitude you have going to work. You know, you decide what's going to impact you. And, I, you know, certainly I'm a supervisor, so I try to set the example for my officers. You know, I show up to work every day. And whether I've had a, a bad day or a good day, I got a smile on my face and I'm asking them in roll call, how you guys doing today? Everything going all right? Because that can set the tone for the shit. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, I think a lot of the stuff too is you just see from the outside the opponents to policing and some of those who buy into the narrative, they're the ones looking to remove every stitch of morale and camaraderie. Uh, I but I think it's still there. I think a lot of the members, you know, you love going in, you see your friends, you see your coworkers. Um, there's something about the job that still brings that out uh, in people and they want to be around other people, right? That's why you go and do this and you want to see your, your, your team, your squad. So yeah, no, I think um, it's still there, but it's just interesting the battle of trying to take things out of policing and the things that can kind of bring us together, like the blue line. Um, we had a whole thing up here with, uh, it was called a warrior's creed and they were trying to change the wording around that. Cause you know, a word in there sounds, uh, too aggressive or, you know, it, it portrays a certain image. It's like, I think we're overthinking a lot of this stuff. Also, whatever narrative people are yep. bringing up with, you know, say the blue line and saying it's racist, they'll go find any sort of thing in history where there was a, the color blue on it. You're like, see, it's racist. And now that's the narrative. I don't think people are putting any kind of time or effort into looking at who's saying this or why they're doing it. And then they're just buying into it. It's like, maybe you should ask some questions. So um, I did want to make sure we kind of got to something just talking about youth and uh, teaching them. So do you guys have okay. any sort of uh, programs that you run or uh, do you have school resource officers? I don't know what you would call them down there, but anybody that is specifically works with youth and educating them on kind of what police do and how to interact with police? Yeah, so uh, individual departments will have, you know, everybody calls them something different, but you hit the nail on the head, you know, school resource officers. And it's actually funny because when we were kind of going through some of the defund the police talk a few years back, which we successfully beat back in most areas because, you know, we know what communities want. And, you know, an actual uh, recent uh, poll out from the New York Times said that the 60% of working class Americans actually want more funding for police officers. I know, mm -hmm. shocker, right? Um, but, you know, they were trying to actually get these officers ousted from the schools. And, and it's just, it's so contrarian to what they're trying to say because they, they tell us at every moment that we need to build, you know, trust with our community. We need to bridge the gap. We knew a better job, but we don't want you talking to any school age children about police officers. I mean, it, it's such a joke. It's so disingenuous. Um, but I think where we fall short is that police departments tend to target high school kids mm. to bridge the gap with them. And, and I mean, that, that, that's worthwhile. Don't get me wrong, especially. Uh, for kids that are getting to be driving age, you know, we want to make sure they understand how to interact with us on a traffic stop, that it's a, it's a two-way respect street. We're going to respect you. You respect us. What, what expectations we have, keep your hands on the steering wheel. Don't reach around inside the vehicle. We don't know what you're reaching for, all those things. But we need to start younger because I, in my opinion, at 15, 16 years old, you know, the die is cast at that point. Uh, you know, 
people kind of already have opinion or young people kind of already have an opinion of how they feel about police officers yeah. at that age. So I really feel like as a profession, we need to do a better job of maybe going into middle school and explaining what police officers do, that we're here to help. If something bad is happening in your school, you need to tell us about it. If there's someone in your school that are making threats, you need to feel comfortable to tell a police officer. And the only way we do that is being in that school and building that relationship. You know, because unfortunately, there is situations where the parents are teaching kids not to like police mm-hmm. officers, to hate them, to tell them they were the enemy. Don't go to them if you need help, which is, you know, I mean, that's horrible listening to these children, but that's besides the point. We could spend hours on a podcast talking about that. But I think we probably need to start a little bit younger to make sure that we're building those relationships with our young people. Um, and maybe we can get out in front of some of the things that we're seeing on the street. Like you talked about, you know, we're experiencing the same thing where people are pushing the envelope. They're screaming at us. They're interfering in our scene. This makes it dangerous for all of us, not just police officers. It makes it more dangerous for mm-hmm. them, too. So I, I think we need to start with a little bit of a younger generation to try to uh, to combat some of the, you know, kind of anti-police rhetoric that's, that's being beaten into their heads. You know what, and I, oh man, I don't know where I heard this, but I heard this years ago and I thought it was such a good point where uh, somebody was given, uh, gave the example of like, you know, you could be walking anywhere, you see a parent with their kids and they, you know, they'll tell the kid, hey, if you're not good, you know, I'll get the police to come take you away. Uh, and uh, what was their, their response was, uh, um, you know, when I'm the only person they can call, even when you're hurting them. And yes, a lot of parents do bad things to their kids. Who are they going to call? So end of the day, the police officer is the one that is expected to show up no matter who's calling and what situation. So sometimes parents can fail their kids. It's still going to be a police officer that has to show up and help them out. And I just thought, wow, I never thought of that. And now every time I hear that, that's the first thing that comes to mind is like, well, don't tell your kid that because I might have to come take him and save him from you. So, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and you know what I tell officers too is like, never miss an opportunity to talk to a kid while you're yeah. in uniform. Like there are still a ton of kids that look at us like <laughs> we're superheroes, even though some of us may not look like yeah. superheroes. <laughs> like they, they, they love seeing us. Whatever you're doing, I don't care if you're having a bad day, whatever, take five seconds out of your day, kneel down, get on their level, say hello to them. If you got like a little junior police sticker, mm-hmm. give it to them. That's an opportunity to at least show like, hey, kid, like we're the good guys. If you need us, come to us. We'll help you. Don't miss that opportunity. And you know what? It's rewarding for you, too. You get something out of it. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I know you do got to get going here, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. We'll definitely look to have you back on here. Uh, is there any way that people can follow you or how best to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, shameless plug, follow me on Twitter, at Joe Gamaldi. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at, at Joe Gamaldi. Um, I'm also on Facebook, uh, Joe Gamaldi National uh, Vice President of the FOP. So, you know, follow me on all those platforms, uh, interact, and, uh, you know, hopefully share some of my stuff if you think uh, it, it resonates with you. Um, Nathan, I just want to thank you so much for, for giving me the time and having me on. And, uh, man, I, I feel like we could have went on for like another two hours here. The time just oh, yeah. flew by. So, uh, you know, hopefully we can get together again and, and do another taping. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, hang on the line for a minute. Uh, I'm just going to stop the recording and, uh, but thanks for coming and yeah, we appreciate the time.